It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. As ever, we've got plenty packed into today's show. We'll be reacting to Mumbai Indians' IPL triumph, going into a lot of depth on how teams are shaping up ahead of next year's T20 World Cup. The Women's T20 Challenge, the WBBL, drama in the Sheffield Shield, a Pakistan captain change, and we'll be hearing from a current England cricketer who also happens to be one of the best fantasy football players in the world. I'm Yazrana, and with me today is the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner, the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and Crickviz analyst Ben Jones. Welcome to the show, Ben's and Joe. Um, ben Jones, how are you filling your afternoons now that the IPL is done and dusted? <laughs> well, it was going to be a kind of yawning chasm of existential despair, but thankfully we're recording this at 2pm the day after the final. So that, that, that exact slot of, the, my, of my afternoon that was IPL-based has kind of got something in it for the meantime. It, even if we're going to do it today, I might encourage you to come back tomorrow and uh, <laughs> Let me talk about the IPL for the next week because it's a in, in a in a lockdown world in lockdown 2.0. Just having four hours of cricket every day for the last two months has been something of a saviour. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mumbai extended their recent dominance in the tournament, winning their fifth trophy in eight years with a comfortable victory in the final over the Delhi Capitals. Joe, why are they so dominant? Um, well, they've got all bases covered, haven't they? You look at some of the other teams, like su- watching Sunrisers in their second qualifier against Delhi Capitals, for instance. You just felt if they lose three, maybe four wickets, it's really hard to see them chasing down a substantial score. Whereas Mumbai Indians just keep coming at you. They've got real depth in their batting. And then add uh, Bolt and Boomer taking, what, 52 wickets between them. Uh, and that's a pretty potent mix that you've got there. One interesting thing about Mumbai Indians, it'd be interesting to get Ben Jones's thoughts in particular on this, is they don't have an absolutely gun spinner. I know, I know um, Raul Chua had a, had a good IPL and... and to, I think, 15 wickets there, and Krunal Pandya does a, a tidy job. But they haven't got a, a Rashid Khan or a Chahal or a, a Narayan of previous seasons, when, which is quite interesting when we know just how pivotal spin is in that T20 format. Yeah, I think that's largely a result of their squad building over the last few years, because obviously in a normal season, they're playing at the Wankadians 
that's not a that's not a ground where you want to be a spinner. You probably want to rely on on the seamers and the guys who the the spinners that they do rely on are very defensive spinners. Like Krunal Pandya is a a genuinely kind of bizarre kind of bowler because he bowls so defensively and he's got all those kind of strange quirks, dropping his arm, bowling basically like a kind of 110 kilometers per hour fastball. He he knows all of the tricks to try and keep the run rate down because the Wanke is so high scoring. And so they haven't had those kind of traditional attacking spinners. And, you know, you can look at Chennai with all of the spinners that they've had down the years. It's a completely different model for success. But what they've always done, I think, quite well is that they've always, they've never wasted a, an overseas spot on the spinner. Like 99% of their spin deliveries over the last seven years have been by Indians. So they know that there's tons of good, solid, like reliable Indian spinners. They don't need a world-class absolute gun. They just get one of those and then they use their overseas elsewhere. So it's just been canny, I think. Like, yeah, Rahul Jahar is a good bowler and he'll probably develop over the coming years. Maybe they'll retain him, maybe they'll write to match him, but not sure yet. But yeah, they've got, they basically don't worry about it being too much of a weakness because they can kind of fill it as a, you know, they just stick at competent. Prunel is competent, Rahul is competent. And that doesn't, that means they're, they're so strong elsewhere. I kind of got the impression that they might be tactically ahead of other teams as well. They made a very astute move before the final, taking out Rahul Chahar, who'd done very well with them all season, replacing him with an off spinner, Jayant Yadav, uh, to target some of Delhi's left handers. Um, Wisden, Ben, are they, are they tactically ahead of everyone? And if so, who deserves credit for it? Is it the coach, Jai Warner, or is it the captain, Rohit, or is it analysts in the background? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's pro- probably a combination of, of all of those. I think I think that Jai Wardner is quietly building like a quite impressive resume as a, as a coach. I mean, he was a very technically astute uh, captain for Sri Lanka, and we might well see him leading one of the big national sides in not too long. Uh, and I think I think also, I mean, it, it extends more than just tactically in terms of their team makeup and things uh, to just how they've, because I mean, this, this is obviously they've been a dominant team and that's kind of come about through just like loads of like planning ahead and, you know, faith in their players and that sort of thing. It's quite hard, even though they've been like, you know, they're sort of this, like uh, this m- mega team filled with mega stars. It's quite hard to like dislike them or begrudge them anything because even those mega stars that they had, you know, the likes of Rohit Sharma, Karim Pollard, Bumrah, they've actually played quite a, big part in making them megastars. And you look at this year, Ishan Kishan's maybe been, uh, and Siri Kimiyadov have probably been their two best players. And they're players that they've put a lot of faith in, have kind of backed and are now reaping the rewards. I think it's just uh, uh, an incredibly well-run team, essentially. I guess I guess the question will be, uh, can, this, can this dominance continue? How can other teams catch up? And it looks like ahead of the next IPL, Ben, uh, Ben might be able to... Uh, update us more on this, but it looks like it's going to be like a mega auction, but you don't really doubt that Mumbai Indians will come away from that still with one of the strongest sides just because they kind of not only have all bases covered as like a on the field, but they just seem to be incredibly well run behind the scenes and know exactly how to go about building dominant sides time and again. So yeah, it's a, an incredible achievement. Yeah, as far as we know, there will there will be a mega auction ahead of the next tournament and it will be really interesting to see how they go about it because Obviously, Mumbai have built all this success on, uh, like you say, it's been long-term planning. It's the, those auctions and their recruitment, the early part of the decade, and it's kind of born fruition in the second half of the decade, really winning three of the last four. But right now, yeah, they can retain three or two, depending on the, whether they're capped or not, and then they can write to match. And so they can basically, if they play the cards right, literally, they can keep five of this side. And you think, you know, Rohit's a lock because he's Rohit, Bumrah the same. 
probably going to want to keep Pollard, but you can't keep through. You can keep him overseas, and all suddenly all the balances come into it. And then you've got Suryakum Yadav, who's an uncapped player and would probably go for a huge amount on the open market. So Mumbai have got some thinking to do in order to keep this core squad together. That's not even that's even mentioning Hardik and Krunal as well, who've been so important to the balance of the side to the actual eleven. So I think if they can go about, if they can go into the next auction with a clear strategy, even if they're just replacing like for like, swapping a Krunal for an Akshar Patel or something like that, then they can still keep the quality, even if they don't keep, necessarily keep the personnel together. One of the interesting things about the IPL is that like you've got all these structures to kind of create competitive balance. You have to like restrip your sides and kind of recreate them every few years and salary caps and all of that. But Mumbai have basically kind of overcome all that in the over the last decade. They've they've kind of broken the system, and so it's all it's more impressive to have a, a dynasty like Mumbai in a in a tournament like the IPL than it is even in something like the Blast, where basically you can just sign up your players and keep them for years. Or in other sports like in Premier League football, where you know sign. You sign Kevin De Bruyne for a five-year contract and you know you've got one of the best players in the world for five years. Mumbai have kind of railed against a system which doesn't invite dynasties and they've created one. Ben, I, I have a broadly irrelevant but good pub debate question for you. Uh, would Mumbai Indians win the next World T20? That's not irrelevant. That is the absolute stuff I live for. <laughs> it's a shame we're not in the pub. I would say that they would come in the top four without question, if this is a kind of FIFA-style thing where all of their overseas players can play, if, you know, if they come against the West Indies, Pollard can play for both. I'd say that they would come third. I think they'd probably lose to Australia and to India, a full-strength India with all their players picked correctly. But yeah, it's, it's, it seems odd in some ways because we're used to international cricket being the, the pinnacle of the sport in other formats, particularly in test cricket. But actually, Mumbai's recruitment is so good. They've got such a good blend. They've got all bases covered. And the individuals themselves are of such high quality. But yeah, I mean, you know, maybe if they came up against a full-strength South Africa or West Indies on their day, they might get rolled. But basically, you know, they're, they're just better than everyone else in the world. I put on I put on Twitter and I've started referring to it to try and create a bit of vibe around it, the idea that they're the best T20 side in the world. And that's largely because I don't think India are picking their right side and Australia have only really been picking their you know, their red ball guns in T20 cricket for the last 12 months. So Mumbai for the last three years, you know, they are streets ahead of everyone else in my opinion. Yeah, I think the two words that were most keen, what you said there, Ben, was uh, picked correctly with India. And we're going to go into more detail on the T20 World Cup later and, and how the teams are all shaping up. But um, Ben Garner, another pub question is, uh, would India be more likely to win that tournament with Rohit at the helm? He's now captain Mumbai to five IPL titles. Uh, I, I guess, sort of in a, in a vacuum, it's kind of a, it's obviously very easy to see that, or well, it's 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 very easy to argue that Rohit Sharma is a, a better, a more tactically astute T20 captain than Virat Kohli. Uh, but I, I don't necessarily think that means that um, uh, that India should therefore just pick Rohit Sharma as as T20 captain. I think that you know, uh, there's a lot more to captaincy especially international captaincy than just the on-field job of of placing your fielders and picking your bowlers and you know Virat Kohli is the is the the one man who can be kind of bigger than the Indian cricket team and so can therefore uh, if, if, if there is sort of lack of his captaincy he can uh, maybe sort of ride that wave a little bit more and I think also just the upheaval that it would cause to sort of replace Virat Kohli as one of the as, you know as the national side's leader reasonably close to a major tournament and then to have him have to bed in under another guy. I mean, by, by all accounts, Virat's a you know a, a, a nice, agreeable bloke. But I mean, I, I don't think that India 
uh, exactly need to. I mean, I mean, the, Cody and Sharma seem to get on well. That no doubt he'd be leaning on him anyway for those sort of tactical things. So I don't think it should matter too much. I mean, I mean, T Twenty cricket has evolved so much anyway uh, that like uh, India, there's no way they can't be sort of tactically better this time than last time. The, the 2016 tournament just feels so long ago. When I was looking at uh, India's. Um, elimination match when they, when they were knocked out by West Indies and you had so obviously everyone knows about Rahane opening the batting getting 40 or 35 in a game that was sort of 200 plays 200 but Cody himself also bowled the, uh, the the last over in that defending eight to win and obviously got sort of smashed by Andre Russell just a sort of a, a, a sort of crazy mismanagement of a, an incredibly talented team uh, Cody's not I don't think he's an awful captain I don't think he's got quite the knack for it that Rohit has but I think that there's a lot of other reasons that mean that he's probably the right man to continue at the moment. Women's T20 Challenge came to an end this week as well, with the Trailblazers ending the Supernova's grip on the competition. England's Sophie Eccleston was excellent all tournament for them. But the bit I wanted to talk about was the amazing bit of fielding from Thailand's Nakatan Chantham in the final. Ben Garner, do you want to talk us through that? If you haven't seen it, and you should just go and find it on, on Twitter or, or the IPL's, Website the uh, the closest analog I can think I feel like there might have, it was in the 2015 World Cup when uh, New Zealand I think it was a game that they were going to win comfortably but one was sort of I think maybe hit through the, the covers and Brendan McCullum just sets off in, in full power afterwards sort of uh, dives flicks it back just keeps it in and then goes kind of crashing into the boundary hoardings and you're kind of thinking like is that important to the team should he really be doing that but this, this was the the same sort of thing where she sort of dives taps it I think what, what's also good is just how sort of there's the, the deafness of the touch to keep the ball in play as well as the sort of uh, when you're diving at that pace and running at that pace and then sort of like uh, folds in half over herself as she kind of hits the, the boundary but, but she, 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 says, she says she's fine uh, but it's uh, yeah an astonishing bit of fielding I think what was what was great about that is that you had um, people and on this podcast last week were sort of saying the tournament is you know too short, which it, it, it is. That's not what I'm arguing here. But but for for for, for Chantam, this kind of made it uh, all worth it in a way. I mean, she kind of showed, you know, not just how how talented she is, but really it's a sort of a a window into how much Thailand cricket is is progressing. And uh, I think it just yeah, it it shows the the immense value of having uh, a tournament like that, sort of boosted by the profile of the IPL and. Uh, which in a way makes it sadder that it was so short because we were deprived of, you know, all the other moments of brilliance that we would have had had it been sort of a, a four-team, every team played each other twice before going into a final sort of thing. But yeah, it was a, an amazing moment and uh, good for her. Yeah, it was a shame that she didn't get much of a bat. She's a good batter. She hit 56 um, during the T20 World Cup against Pakistan in a game that Thailand were definitely going to win before the rain came down. So it, w- it was a shame to see her shunt it down the order. Um, moving on, Pakistan beat Zimbabwe 3-0 in a T20i series this week. The series is probably most notable for the emergence of Usman Qadir, the son of Abdul. Qadir, a leggy like his father, took eight wickets from the three games in a series that also saw Zimbabwe's Elton Chigumbura retire from the international game. But the big news from Pakistan this week was that Baba Razam has replaced Azhar Ali as their test skipper with Mohamed Rizwan promoted to the vice-captaincy. Azza has been retained in their test squad for their upcoming tour of New Zealand. But Asad Shafiq, who last missed a test for Pakistan all the way back in September 2011, has been left out. 
Joe, what do you make of that move? Is there a danger of Pakistan cricket being a bit too reliant on young Baba? I think there is. I think there is that danger. Uh, I think it was the natural progression. It was only a matter of time before he did get the job. He's obviously very much in amongst that that big five with Smith, Cody, Williamson and Root. People might argue that Root is lucky to be considered in that company based on the last couple of years. But he's Baba is very much in there. Um, and if it wasn't for Sandpaper Gate, all five of them would be would be test captains now. Um, I get, yeah, the big question is, has the captaincy come too soon for him? He's, he's just turned 26. And, and how will it affect his batting? If you look at the rest of that that big five, uh, Smith, Cody, Williamson, it had a really positive impact on their on their batting record. I've got the figures here. Smith, 70 as captain, 57 without average. Cody averaged 61 as captain, 41 without the captaincy. Williamson, 54 as captain. 49 without, but you contrast that with Root, who uh, averages 42 with the captaincy and 53 without. And Pakistan can't afford for Baba's batting form to drop off like Root's. They just don't have the batting riches to be able to get away with that. Um, and there's also a question of, of how good a captain he is and how well suited the job he is. And I can't pretend to know the answer to that. I've, I've never spoken to him, interviewed him. I don't really know much about his kind of character, but I, I didn't think his leadership was particularly impressive in the T20 series. Over here, uh, there were kind of farcical scenes at the start where there seemed to be a, a four-man committee making every on-field decision. And then at the end of that series, he went absolutely ballistic at Harris Ralph, despite him having just won the match for Pakistan. He didn't see his early days, of course, but he didn't seem to have kind of control in the way that some of the other captains I've just talked about did. Um, so I think the main thing is to, to kind of let him do it his own way, develop his own style of leadership. But it is one of the very toughest jobs in, in cricket. I think in Australia, they say being captain of the cricket team is second most important job after the Prime Minister. There'll be a lot of Pakistanis who think it's the other way around in, in Pakistan. And there's the added pressure, albeit very welcome pressure, of, of playing on home soil, um, which something is a poor old Azarali didn't get much to, much chance to do, having waited so long to play in Pakistan over his career. He gets sacked as captain almost immediately after Pakistan are back there. It'll be fascinating to see how it goes. Uh, yeah, there's a lot riding on this for Pakistan uh, because they can't afford Baba to be anything other than completely brilliant with the bat. Yeah, I think comparing Baba to the other members of that so-called Big Five, I think Baba is less... Um, he's not quite as far ahead in his development as a test batsman as the others were when they got the captaincy. Baba's kind of only real, really nailed test cricket in the last, what, 12, 18 months. So... I do think there's a lot of pressure on him. But I guess the next question is, who else was there? Well, Shan Masood would have been one option. Uh, they talk about him as a future captain. He's obviously an extremely intelligent man, speaks very well. But he's another player. He's had, a, he's had a very good time of it in Test cricket, but he had a very lean time of it before that. That would have also been a risk. There wasn't the obvious candidates, really. Uh, Rizwan's a really impressive character. I think he, he might well make a good captain or certainly make a good vice-captain. Um, but I think it's probably the right decision at this moment. It doesn't mean it will still be the right decision in, in two years' time with the benefit of hindsight. I think t t two things is that one option would have been just to, to give Azar a little bit longer. I mean, I know that he got quite a lot of criticism for Pakistan's performance in the end of that first test. But, I mean, should that discount the work that they'd done as a team up to that point to get into a winning position? And it was a bit also like a, a freakish partnership that won England that series, even if he did play his part in allowing it to, to happen. And that sort of speaks the fact that he's been axed st straight after that series in terms of they haven't played another test since then. 
just shows that, I mean, after sort of six years of kind of stability under Mizbar as captain, uh, it's kind of gone back to the bad old days in a way when the captaincy just gets passed around. I mean, Safra didn't have long in the in the test captaincy uh, and then Azarad had even shorter. So I think as much as it's important to let Babar, you know, develop his own style uh, and let him do it his own way, it's almost as important just to, just to let him do it, to give him like a, a long stretch in the job uh, without there being, you know, much talk over, you know, who, who should who should take over, who should be next. Should he, is, is, he, is he the right man for the job? Because that's, uh, been basically the story of, uh, of Pakistan's test captaincy for the last three or four years now. One thing I would say as well is that whilst Bab has not exactly had like tons of captaincy experience, as we as we said, and it's not necessarily been the most kind of whelming when he has captained. He's captained fourteen matches for Pakistan across formats and averages sixty eight with the bat when doing so. So in terms of the you know oh is he going to drop off as and when he takes the takes the uh, the armband. I'm not too concerned about that because you know if he, he he's a very good player. If he gets worse because of that, and they'll take it off him. You know, it's not it's not like in England where you're kind of duty bound to be Test captain for five years, even if you rub it, you just do it like a term of office. If he's bad, they'll take it away from him. I think the what's exciting is that you know he yes he is not as far along in his development as Smith, Cody, Williamson, Root were, but he's on the cusp of that. I was I was out in Australia last year when Pakistan were touring, and he. He was in those in those test matches. There, he looked the best batsman, not just in his side, but in the game. He he is a. We all know how wonderful he is as a as an as an aesthetic player, but as an actual numbers batsman as well. He's just fantastic, and I think it's worth rolling the dice on a talent of that magnitude just to see that you know what maybe he'll get better. Maybe he will go up another. Maybe he'll average 65, 70 for the next four years, and then suddenly Pakistan have got both a leader, a world class batsman. You know this wonderful young attack of pace bowlers, and suddenly that you've got like a side forming. I think it's worth rolling the dice just to see what you know, see what can happen. In case anyone's wondering, Fawad Alam has held on to his spot uh, in the Pakistan squad for the New Zealand tour, so his story continues. Um, the Sheffield Shield: Will Pukowski continue to pile on the runs in the latest round of fixtures, scoring his second double hundred in as many games. He's opened the batting in just two first-class games, and he scored double hundreds in both. According to the Australian Associated Press, um, both Bukowski and Cameron Green are both set to win test call-ups for the first test of the India series later this month. Um, ben Jones, do you expect them both to come straight into the eleven? I, I don't. To, I don't think they'll come straight into the eleven. No, I think I think Bukowski will, um, and I think that's the right call. I think Cameron Green's just a little bit short at the moment. I think the fact that Travis Head, I think, still kind of clinging on to his position. I think Green's probably got to displace Matt Wade. And I'm not sure Wade's done enough wrong for that to be the case. But I think it is where I know you guys, obviously, obviously I'm a keen listener. I listen every week. and I know you guys have been waxing lyrical about Bukowski and Green over the last few weeks. And I don't want to tread over old ground. But I do think it's, it's worth just going back over. Like one of the numbers that I found when I was going through it is that obviously Bukowski now has three first class double tons. He's 22. The only Australians in history with more double tons before turning 23 uh, Victor Trumper, who has four or had four, and uh, and Don Bradman, who slightly frustratingly had twelve, um, <laughs> which kind of ruins the stat of it. But it just shows the kind of company that Bukowski's mixing in. And I mean, I, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago when Bukowski first broke through, um, and I, I was really keen for him to get in the side then because you know he was this kind of bright, bright new hope kind of thing. He was going to be this incredible player that was going to come through and solve all Australia's batting ills in the middle of that India series. 
in 2018-19. But actually, he's he obviously struggled with his mental health. And he struggled with the short ball and obviously fell away from the side. But I've just been looking at some of the detailed numbers and watching some of the highlights of his tons over the last couple of couple of weeks. He's faced 45 short balls, that kind of delivery, which obviously caused him a lot of issues in the past. He scored 47 runs and he's not been dismissed by one. And if you look at him hooking some of the guys, particularly against WA in that 202 that he's just made, he actually was kind of right back in his crease, pulling off his nose. He didn't look troubled by it. It looked quite authoritative. And by the end of his innings, he was pulling in front of square. And I think he looked, he has got a back foot game. It's easy when someone says, oh, they've got, a, when the rumour goes round that someone's got a problem with the short ball, people start to think, oh, it's because, you know, they're on the front foot driving the whole time. He's not, he's a back foot player. He's a, he's a proper Australian style opening batsman. And I think whilst obviously this season, he's not really faced anyone of extreme pace. Probably the quickest guy he's faced is Cam Green. But he's playing against like Dan Worrell, Chad Sayers. These guys are proper bowlers. They're not necessarily the quickest, but he's he's dominating them and he's not really getting out to them. So I think, yeah, if Australia want to roll the dice on one of those two, I think it's Bukowski because I think, yeah, Joe Burns at the top of the order and there's not quite as much talent up there at the moment. I think Bukowski's got an easier route into the side, even even though I think he is a player than, than Green at the moment. I think his actual yeah, route into the side is easier as well. I just want to see him have a go because this series is going to lack a bit of stardust with Coley not being there for the majority in the winter. And I think, it, you know, seeing these youngsters come through, whether it's Bukowski or Shubman Gill, these guys who are, you know, they've been talked about so much. It'd be so exciting if they did just come in and succeed. And it just adds an extra layer to the whole to the whole affair. That, that Bradman stat, even for Bradman, is completely mental. Elsewhere in the Sheffield Shield, uh, there are a couple of interesting incidents involving members of the Australian Test team. Ben, do you want to run through them and, and what was your favourite? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it reminds me most of, of Top Gun, just sort of a testosterone fueled sort of a male emotion, basically. Um, so first, I think that you're referring to is Mitchell Stark. Uh, he uh, was on 86 now. He's never made a first class and we, we should probably say when we're, you know, bigging up Will Pukowski and Cameron Green that there have been a lot of runs scored in the Sheffield Shield uh, this summer, but still not 22-year-olds making consecutive double hundreds. But yeah, so, so, so Stark was on 86 and out when, uh, when his captain, uh, he's Neville, declared on him. And, uh, and as he's walking back to the dressing room, sort of just uh, throws his bat in, in frustration uh, and the captain said he's has since said that he's uh, he's apologised to Stark for declaring on him, even though it was a game one sort of quite late on on day four, so it's probably the right call. And then in that same game, uh, Tim Payne was trying to bat out for a draw, was given out LBW perhaps questionably, and then as uh, as he gets back to the uh, to the dressing room, sort of throws his gloves in a uh, in despair and anger as well, and they sort of like bounce off the side of the marquee and uh, and back on onto the fence so yeah quite quite a lot of uh of anger in a in the australian first class system that that game was also fun because uh tim payne was was playing and he wasn't catching but his, his side uh bowled out the opposition for less than 70 in the first innings and then still went on to lose and i think that might have happened to a side with tim payne in it before but i can't quite remember exactly i'm just i'm just imagining payne and, and stark and the rest of these players you know, now engaged in a kind of slightly homoerotic game of volleyball now with the Top Gun image. It's it's kind of like it's somehow even better than Tim Payne being bowled out for 60 odd and then losing. Um, question for you, Joe. At what point can a batsman become annoyed once they've been declared on? Because 86 feels a bit low for me. Like it's it's not it's not a given. It's not it's not quite 99, is it? 
I like the fact you come to me as though I've I've been in this position many times with that similar <laughs> film. But um, I think you've got to be in the nineties to start getting a bit annoyed, haven't you? I suppose I suppose the the key is the message, isn't it? You'd think you could at least be told, right? You've got an over and have a slog to get it done. Um, but I think yeah, eighty six I think is is pushing it. But it's been an interesting start to the Sheffield Shield. It's I was chatting to Adam Collins yesterday, who's who's back on board as a columnist, Wisdom Cricket Monthly over the course of the Aussie summer, and he was saying that it's kind of a return to the glory days of the Sheffield Shield with just runs being racked up all over the place, young batsmen coming through, scoring mountains of runs. You've got the old pros, in this case, someone like uh, Sean Marsh, he's got 300s already. Uh, and of course, you've also got a, a leggy absolutely tearing it up, topping the wicket, taking charts. Uh, this case is Mitchell Swepson rather than Shane Warne. But uh, he's had a brilliant start to the year. Uh, is he going to be in, in the in the mix for test selection as well? I'm, 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 not, I'm not really being across that. Ben, ben Jones, you were following this. No, I don't think he's in in contention for for the eleven certainly, but I think he is, you know, in contention for a squad place. Australia obviously very unlikely to play two spinners at home, particularly against India. But yeah, he's the form guy. It's quite funny in um, in a former incarnation of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, I did some work experience at the start of uh, 2017, and I wrote then for for your uh, kind of next big thing column. I wrote about Mitchell Swepson. I remember being really excited about, you know, young Australian leggy coming through, apparently got all the tricks, got all the wrong-uns, all the flippers, et cetera, et cetera. And it hasn't quite kicked on for him from then. I think he's been slightly beaten around by Queensland. He's not necessarily been given the opportunities that his, his bowling's maybe deserved. So I think, yeah, you know, in, in, in a summer where, you know, they're going to be wanting to kind of build up the, the drama without all the fans, they're going to want to, you know, treat, treat uh, they're going to want to kind of please the crowd, even though they're not there, you know, pick a young... Australian leggy people aren't going to turn their noses up at that so hopefully he'll get a run but I don't think it's going to displace Lyon as the first choice anytime soon no he's had an interesting career hasn't he because he went to India in what was it 2017 and having played not much first class cricket uh, and yeah and as you say he's, he's been messed around a bit since I remember bowling in a I think it was a T20 against England a couple of years ago and he got a couple of big wickets I, I was quite impressed by him at the time but it is even for Brisbane is it's hard work uh, in Australia uh, and they don't take many wickets. We complain about spinners not taking wickets in county cricket over here, but there's not many taking a lot of wickets in Sheffield Shield cricket. Uh, so it's exciting for Aussies to see another one coming through. I guess English fans might be seeing some of these numbers racked up by some promising new players and, and fearing the worst come next winter. Um, but but it's all good stuff. We want a strong Australia. Uh, and I think they must go into the series against India as, as favourites now with, with Kohli not there and a kind of resurgent side. Good memory, Joe. Mitchell Swepson's only two international wickets are Joss Butler and Owen Morgan. There you go. That's decent. You take it. Not quite, um, not quite Riaz Afridi, brother of Shaheen, whose only two test wickets were Mahela Jai Warner uh, and Kumar Sangakara. Um, <laughs> the WBBL has just passed its halfway point the Melbourne Stars are currently out in front they've not lost a game yet Meg Lanning has scored a load of runs for them she's currently averaging 62 and Nat Skiver is leading the overall wicket-taking charts for them with 12 wickets so far quick update on Darcy Brown who we talked about last week the 17-year-old has currently got the best economy rate in the competition among all quick bowlers she's going at just I think exactly five runs and over Wisden, Ben, you've been impressed with Georgia Wareham's development this this series. Yeah, well, well mostly just that she's uh, she's kind of added a, another string to her bow as like a, a 
proper all-rounder and, and kind of like quite a modern all-rounder as well in terms of uh, uh, being able to, to, to score quickly rather than score big. And I mean, she's uh, Australia have, you know, lots of spinners, lots of options there. And so that that's going to be key for them. And just kind of, it's it's just, yeah, scary how they're like uh, the competition for selection leads to the players just becoming better and better, basically, and just becoming more complete players because they know that's what they're going to have to be to just to get into the side rather than to like beat the opposition once they get into the side. Uh, so yeah, she's really good. But, but she's, uh, she's injured now, so she's out of the tournament. And she's actually, she's part of the other Melbourne team who are, who are dead last at the moment, which I guess might be why she's got a bit of chance uh, batting, uh, but you know she, she, she's she's been a she, she's been impressive. Uh, and the other person, I mean, it's sort of no surprise that Heather Knight's been sort of a, a standout player. But I still do think that we in England, perhaps, I mean, slightly forget that she she is actually now one of the world's best batters, kind of full stop. I mean, she was brilliant in the in the T Twenty World Cup. She's been really consistent for England for a long time. I almost wonder if she's a a victim of her own adaptability in a way that you can't kind of uh, because she she's she's performed quite a few sort of different roles for England occasionally she's been a bit of all rounder as well that you kind of uh, at no point has she kind of sort of been in one space in one spot making like sort of you know match defining big fifties or hundreds over and over again because she's been doing a lot of different things but she kind of uh, yeah she's what second in the run charts at the moment. And it's just uh, showing again that she's just one of the best players in the world. Is there an element of that also being a product of like the media way that um, women's cricket is often presented or the England women's team kind of has to be presented to the public in that obviously Heather Knight is, when when she appears, she's always the England skipper. And then if Tammy Beaumont appears or if Nat Skiver appears, they're kind of pure players. They're held up for their, like purely for their, their actual playing abilities. Whereas Knight has this kind of more, I think almost like ceremonial role. In the same way as like we kind of hold Joe Root to different standards. There's that kind of, I don't know, you can kind of focus too much on that off-field ability, but actually, yeah, she's just superb. Yeah, I think that's probably fair, especially since the 2017 uh, World Cup. England women haven't really had like a sort of a statement uh, triumph to sort of have her out sort of front and centre. So she, she's, so she, you know, she probably would have fronted up quite a lot during last year's Ashes and... Uh, and then she she she'd been she she did front up sort of and gave a very good press conference after England were eliminated by the rain in the uh, in the World T Twenty, which meant that she was uh, she was talking about the rain, not the fact that she was uh, one of the tournament's best players, and that she you know become the first uh, England cricketer to get centuries in all three international formats. Um, so yeah, I think that there, there probably is a bit of that, and also just uh, yeah, the fact that her her captaincy stint is still sort of I mean it's defined by the twenty seventeen World Cup, but while she's been personally very successful and by sort of women's engines and stuff, she's been a very good captain. There's still sort of like, there was that brilliant kind of start to her life as captain and then there's not been quite the same team success since then. So I guess that's also muddied the water slightly for her. And I guess she means that she's another one for whom 2022 with, you know, global tournament after global tournament is going to be such a, a huge year for kind of ending with if, if she's remembered as perhaps uh, like, up there with England's greatest uh, women's captains. Now onto the centrepiece of today's show, uh, a look ahead to the T20 World Cup that will be finishing pretty much in exactly a year's time. We'll go through most of the contenders highlighting their strengths and weaknesses. Uh, rather helpfully, I asked the two Bens and Joe uh, to predict who they think the finalists will be, and they gave me five different answers out of the possible six. So uh, we should get a bit of disagreement, which is always good. Uh, we'll start off with you, Joe. Who do you think 
are the two teams that are looking best placed for that tournament at the moment? Well, this has shifted a bit because it was obviously the next one was due to have been played in Australia and I had England and Australia as, as marginal favourites. Uh, now it's in India's backyard. I would make them marginal favourites uh, and I reckon England will, will be there in the final with them. But I have to say, it's kind of finger-in-the-air stuff with, with T20 international cricket. I think there are seven teams that could conceivably win it. And, and just the nature of the thing is such a lottery. I think international teams don't play all that much together, so it's difficult to build up a kind of head of steam in the way that we've seen with Mumbai Indians over the last few weeks. Uh, and the format of the competition as well just doesn't really allow you to build much momentum. It's, it's over so quickly. So four group games, if you lose two of them, you're, you're probably out. If you think back to 2016... Uh, if England hadn't chased 230 against South Africa in their second game, they'd have effectively been out of that tournament after two games. Instead, we look back on that tournament and think England were quite unlucky not to win it. Uh, so it just shows that, as in the case in all major sports tournaments, it comes down to who does best on the day. But I think that's even more true in in this case because there is it is just such a lottery of so many teams that are capable of turning each other over on, on any given day. Crickviz Ben very helpfully created a, a master document with all the likely starting 11s of each of the sides. And looking through it from, an, we'll start with England, looking at England, um, h- how worrying uh, Crickviz Ben is the form of Moeen, uh, who, whose batting form has somewhat fallen off a cliff recently. And if he doesn't make that starting 11, England only have one spinner for a tournament in India. How, how much of a concern do you think that will be? Yeah, there's there's no getting away from it. Moeen's drop in form is is more important than it should be for a player who he's probably England's you know sixth best batsman, probably their worst bowler really. But actually, as you say, he's, he's the second spinner, and it's T Twenty cricket. Whether it's in Australia, India, wherever, you need two spinners really to be successful. And I think what's what's been notable in the last few weeks, the IPL last few months, is that yeah, Moeen's not been given an opportunity. In 2019, he was fantastic for for RCB. They haven't trusted him this year. He's not played. When he has played, he's made kind of weird, slightly hilarious mistakes. And Sam Curran's been, you know, doing brilliantly for Chennai. And so on on the document that you refer to, which is so pleasingly colour-coded, as you guys can see, which you probably tweeted out, um, Sam Curran is in there ahead of Moeen Ali at number seven as England's kind of fifth, sixth bowler. And I think that that is a huge weakness for England. But also, I think it's not just responsive. It's, it doesn't just fall on the on the shoulders of Moeen. I think England have been, you know, it's hard to be critical of them because they've been so successful in white ball cricket over the last few years. I think they, almost to a point, know exactly what their plan is. But the failure to develop and cultivate a third spinner, in essence, or a second frontline spinner behind Adol Rashid, I think is probably one of the biggest blots on their copybook. We had Matt Parkinson come in and then not be picked again. Mason Crane hasn't been developed. Liam Dawson's barely played for England, as you referenced, I think, last week or the week before, saying that, you know, he's kind of been around a lot, but never really played. And then you're kind of going down into, you know, guys coming through, whether it's, you know, Will Jacks or Delroy Rawlins, these guys who are batsmen who can bowl a bit. And you do wonder whether that's going to really come back and bite England on the on the backside. If, if Adel Rashid's shoulder goes, then all of a sudden they've got no spinners in the side and Moeen's got to play and Moeen's out of form, et cetera, et cetera. I think, I think that is... For all those reasons, Moeen's, Moeen's lack of form is really concerning. I, I think, you know, they're probably going to stick with him. Because that's been the Owen Morgan way. But whether or not that is that is right, we saw in the last in the 50-over World Cup that halfway through the tournament, they said, sorry, Mo, we're jacking this in. We're just going to pick all the quicks. You do wonder whether there's going to be something similar 
in, uh, in light of the T20 side and whether it's going to happen before the tournament or when England are on the verge of, uh, of going out, as, as happened in the 50-over stuff. Putting a positive spin on you're probably you're looking pretty good if your your main worry is your backup spinner a year out of a of a major tournament. Well, um, quite. <laughs> um, Joe, the other side you, you tipped for the final at this point was uh, was was India. The thing with India is I just I just don't even know how you how you start going about picking a best eleven all the players they have. Um, there are way more than eleven players who over the last six weeks I've instinctively thought, oh, they've got to be in the starting eleven. Uh, so, ha, ha, do you do you have faith that India will actually get that eleven just about right by the time the tournament comes around? It, it is a difficult dilemma they've got. There, are, there are too many options, really, and which should be a good thing, but can be can be difficult. And if you look at the possible eleven that that Ben Crickviz Ben has, has picked out for us here, you see how influenced it is in some ways by the most recent IPL. Um, Nasarajan features in there, um, obviously did a brilliant job um, with his Yorkers at the death and, and looks like a brilliant T20 bowler. But another IPL comes around and we can have a new star name and other names have drifted off. So I think the team is, is and kind of necessarily in a state of flux the whole the whole time. Uh, it could work well for them. They could just get the, a new star just emerge just at the right time, or it could cause an actual selection headache that they end up getting wrong. And I suppose Kohli, we were talking about India's mistakes in past tournaments. That's probably Kohli's biggest challenge now, uh, alongside the selectors, to, to get the formula right. Uh, and it's something they have struggled with a little bit in the past. And even with the 50 over side, they struggled with it a bit in the World Cup last time. They got confused about their batting order and who should bat in the top order. And and it looks like they potentially could go that way again. So it, it is a potentially tricky thing for them to manage. Ishan Kishan is one player I just thought was absolutely brilliant in the IPL, and and also the way the way he batted in multiple positions as well. I think that he's kind of like your ideal person to have in a squad, if not necessarily in the eleven. Um, something that's been mentioned on the show a couple of times already is is how long it's been since that T Twenty World Cup. So a question, generally, Wisdom Ben, um, is is how reliable do you think the IPL is as an indicator? Um, success in the IPL is 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 an indicator for predicting. T20 World Cup success because I think there is quite a big difference between the T20 World Cup and the bilateral cricket we've seen in the last five years in T20 cricket by the time the World Cup comes around there would have been six IPLs since the most recent T20 World Cup is it possible that we just don't know because overseas players can do really really well uh, kind of someone like Norkir who's really quick might t- be particularly effective against domestic batsmen who, who are just a bit below international level what do you reckon? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think there is definitely a, a danger of uh, so if one of the teams that I've tipped for the, the final is uh, is South Africa, partly because of how well a lot of their players did in the IPL. You realize they've actually got quite a lot of gun T20 players, but it, it is quite easy to look at a tournament in the IPL, see that a team has sort of like seven, you know, really really good players, and think like, oh, they're they're going to have a great side without really thinking about who the other uh, sort of the other four are, and that can actually really hold the team back. I mean, if you've got four really good bowlers and one guy's going to go for 50 every time, that leaves you in a, a pretty weak position. I mean, there's there's yeah, there's quite a lot of differences between how tournaments unfold, I mean, how the T20 World Cup unfolds versus how the IPL unfolds that doesn't make it a perfect predictor, even though it is a good predictor, I think, of how of how good a player is in their best role, I guess. One, so one of the things is that players get picked by teams who already have kind of other bases covered which can mean that I guess IPL teams 
should, in theory, end up more balanced than than T20 teams. So, like, you're not going to get an IPL team not knowing who their, or you shouldn't get an IPL team not knowing who their who their backup finger spinner is because you know they'll have seen that they have that option and then can sort of pick one up at an auction. Whereas, uh, like, if 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 you're a country and you don't have a you don't have a, a backup finger spinner coming through domestic cricket, then you you, you don't have that as as an option. And I guess the other thing is is that as you as we sort of discussed in the 2019 World Cup, England sort of you know fumbling around for the first half of the group stages, sort of tinkering with their best eleven, and uh, and then eventually you know picking Blunkett, dropping Moeen, and that's what uh, sort of kicked them back into gear. Uh, I mean, Jason Roy had time to you know get a hamstring screen and recover from it, and then play a defining role in that in that tournament. You don't get that in the T20 World Cup, but you do in the IPL. So I think that it will depend so much on on which team can sort of go in knowing their best 11 and with that all in form when the tournament starts and then can sort of, I guess, perhaps have faith in those or can, or can sort of spot problems really quickly on the fly rather than, I mean, as, as Joe said, two losses and you're kind of, you're out of it. So I think that like it's a, it's, it's a decent predictor. And I mean, yeah, you should definitely be looking at how these players have done in T20 competitions around the world rather than, how teams did in the last World T20 as a predictor of how they're going to do, but also recognise that there's a lot of chance that can come into it and just like a a lot that can go right or wrong sort of between now the tournament starting and just in the tournament itself. I mean, as I said, like all these teams have match winners and it just take one of those to fire and then all of a sudden you've lost a game and uh, it's what makes it exciting and what makes it hard to predict, I guess. I think the relationship between the IPL and international cricket in terms of the challenges that it offers, as you say, the length and the, the different kinds of um, experience for a player it, it is really pertinent. But I think what's also really pertinent to, to underline is the fact that the quality is not that different, really. Games between the, the, the kind of four or five best international sides in the world um, are of a roughly similar standard, slight, maybe slightly above the same standard as the IPL. But the vast majority of, of international matches, if it's you know Australia against Bangladesh or India against Sri Lanka or England against New Zealand, like they are below the standard overall of um, of IPL matches. And you, you know you can read more about that. Uh, Freddie Wild, my my colleague, uh, wrote a really really good piece for for you guys over at wisdom, on wisdom.com comparing the quality of the different leagues and international cricket. And the IPL came out on top. And there's all kinds of research and details behind that. And I, I would urge you to go and read it but I think it really relates to how India particularly need to pick their squad because Indian cricket because they don't allow their players to go and play outside of India in the other T20 competitions around the world it means that the only experience they get outside of the IPL is for India so rather than whereas England can see how Jason Roy does in Australia by letting him play for Perth Scorchers or Liam Livingston can go and have a go in the in the PSL and see how he does out there the only time that India get a chance to see how Rishabh Pant or Hardik Pandya or Shreyas Iyer do outside of the IPL is when they are in Indian colours. And that really affects selection because it means that you've got this weird tension between whether you trust a very small number of matches for India or whether you trust a large sample of matches in the IPL. And I think that there's kind of a culture, not a culture war exactly, but a kind of culture quibble between whether or not, you know, people in India who really want to back the IPL and say like, oh yeah, look, KL Rahul and Rishabh Pant and Hardy Pandya have hammered the door down for three years or Sanji Sampson and, Tre- and Surakumar Yadav have absolutely battered it down over the last few years. They have more of a case to be in the side than 
quite a few of the old guard and some of the slightly more long form specialists. But a lot of people, a lot more traditionalists, a lot more kind of um, not old fashioned in a derogatory sense, but just kind of people who generally rank international cricket above domestic cricket, regardless of any any analysis or insight. The fact that, you know, Virat Kohli's made is, you know, the greatest ODI batsman ever and Rohit Sharma's made five, six hundreds in an ODI World Cup, etc. That matters because it was in international cricket. The fact that it was in a different format is irrelevant to them because fundamentally it was it was at the, the peak of the sport. And I think that's more so than any other country, that is, you know, the debate that Indian cricket has to go through periodically with every single bit of selection. In English cricket, Australian cricket, South African cricket, whatever, around the world, they get the opportunity to test players in different situations in different uh, kind of scenarios and they kind of get benefit of learning from that and I think it's one of the reasons why in, you know India will never <laughs> let, let Virat Kohli go and play for, for the Melbourne Stars as, as much as um, they won't pick up my phone calls but at the same time I think it's I think it's uh, it's worth underlining what India is losing out on because of that. Do you think that one, one of the established India limited overs ODI players do you think one of them should make way in their T20 I-11? Like maybe looking at someone like Kale Rahul, who commentators, I, just, I was confused at the extent to which uh, commentators would compliment how, how well he did during the IPL because he scored loads of runs. Obviously, that's a good thing, but his strike rate wasn't that impressive. And there were some games you could probably point out as his lack of intent possibly harmed them. Do you think those aren't really questions that the Indian selectors are asking at the moment? I don't think it's a question that the Indian selectors are asking. No, I I, I agree with you. I, I, you. Obviously, you've spoken on spoken on the pod before. I think it was when Rajasthan beat beat Kings Eleven in the in the Tuatia game, and KL made you know I think it was sixty odd or fifty odd, and actually his strike rate was the reason why they lost that game. I think KL is a, a slightly harsh example because uh, you know in the last few seasons he has been an aggressive batsman who has scored quickly. and I think he is slightly hamstrung by the fact that at the start of the season he had a very ropey batting lineup out-of-form Glenn Maxwell and out-of-form Jimmy Neesham and a couple of Indian players who were struggling as well. This was before Peran decided to become the best batsman in the world, kind of thing. And I think KL batting with a bit more responsibility alongside Agarwal was no bad thing. I personally wouldn't say that any of Kohli, Rohit, Rahul deserve to be outside of the Indian setup. They obviously all bring huge, huge experience and huge skill. I think what you would say is that if you didn't know the people involved, you didn't know the humans involved, and you just looked at the numbers and the profile of these players, you would say that three anchor batsmen, basically, they can all get going when they face 30 balls. That's basically true of every single batsman in the world. These are anchor batsmen. Having three in the top three or three in the top four is quite a lot. It's quite a pronounced stylistic choice. And so I wouldn't necessarily say I want to get anyone out there and I wouldn't necessarily commit myself to who that would be for obvious reasons. (laughs) But I would say that India going with three anchors is is never really examined. People just go, oh yeah, well, Rohit made 500 runs, Kohli made 600 runs, KL made 700 runs. Whereas actually, as you say, strike rate and impact, you know, in cricket speak, is is far more important, I think. I, I, I think India are hamstringing themselves with the fact that they are basically making sure they can never really make big totals or huge totals with those guys all in the top three, four. They're relying then on Pan and Hardik down the order to kind of do the, uh, you know, the old George DeBell turn water into wine with Joss Butler kind of trick, and I, th- I think that, yeah, that's no bad thing if that's what the way they want to go with it. They've got a great, they've got a great bowling attack, but I yeah, personally disagree with it. It is the danger not as well that they actually end up with kind of four anchors in that top four because I mean Sh- Shikhar Darwin is someone who we haven't mentioned yet, but I mean he's in that that squad to face Australia and it's been sort of a mainstay of India's uh, you know T20 side for a long time, and you know they, they really trust how he does it in in ICC tournaments as well, so. They, you'd be 
might get a look in because of because of that and had, and had a very good IPL kind of not quite playing as the anchor that he has done in the past, but you imagine that like, you know, he, he might well revert to that if he were pit. You kind of end up with Rahul or Coley down at number four and Darwin and Rowe opening almost like their ODI lineup. And then yeah. they are kind of really arsing themselves. Into it. And I, I would definitely not like be that surprised if that ends up being their, their sort of their top four on the first game of, of, of the T20 World Cup. A hundred percent. I don't disagree with that at all. I think, I mean, Schick has had a fantastic tournament and he has been really good and he has the benefit of being a left-hander, which obviously makes things a little bit, you know, it's a point of difference, even if he's not necessarily quite as good in pure terms. It, 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 that does offer him something a bit different. But what I would say, you know, to kind of put it in English terms, you know, English football terms, it's a bit like saying, you know, you can't ha- you can't play Gerard Lampard, Skulls, Hargreaves, etc., all in the midfield together. It's not saying that any of them are worse than the others. It's just, you know, by having them all in a side, you're making a worse eleven. I think I think that is the case. I think if you had all four of those in in a side, they're all brilliant players. Obviously, the fact that they're all together means that you're you're placing a ceiling on what you're doing. You're raising the floor. You're never going to get bowled out for for a hundred. Um, although Kelly does have some experience of that in RCB colours, but not with this exact top four. Um, I think you're you know you're rarely going to be absolutely you know in the dirt collapse wise, but you're you're rarely going to post 190, 200 plus and backsides out of the game. Maybe that's fine if you've got Bummer and Jahal you know, doing most of your bowling. But I, I think I think it is a roll of the dice. I personally would like to see one of them drop out, maybe two of them drop out and get a couple more attackers in there or just tell the tell these experienced, valuable guys, you know, they've got to get a shift on. They can't just play for their making 40 off 35, 40 off 30. You, you know, you've got to get in. Good time, not a long time. And then, you know, let everyone down the order have a go as well. There's so much talent there. There's so much brilliant ability in this Indian setup, in, the, in Indian cricket generally. From the outside, as someone who's going to want T20 cricket to be played in a particular way, it's frustrating. I feel like sometimes they're squandering these insane riches on a particular brand of cricket that doesn't need to be the way the way it is. Wiz and Ben, you've um, you you've tipped West Indies to make the final. They they obviously they obviously won the tournament in 2016. Why do you reckon they've got a good chance of winning it again? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I guess for the the, the, the same reason that they've uh, they've won in they they won in 2012 and 2016. They they obviously have you know. A, a stacked batting lineup in terms of power, and I also think that of all the T Twenty teams, they kind of get the way to sort of approach the format more than the international teams, more more, more than any of the other uh, international teams in terms of you know just basically trying to hit sixes from ball one and, and continue all the way through. And then added to that the fact that Shimron Hetmar and especially Nicholas Puran, as a, as, as uh, the other Ben mentioned. Uh, look like absolute stars in the making. Pollard is like sort of batting as well as he, as he ever has. Uh, there are a few question marks there, I guess, in that you know Chris Gale is getting on in age, even if he also had a, an impressive campaign once he came into that Kings Eleven side. And Andre Russell, sort of, you're never sure if he's going to be fit and if he's kind of half fit, how effective is he? But um, yeah, I personally think that there's a uh, there's just like it, enough of that side still sort of uh, sticking around. And uh, and enough new blood coming through that they'll be sort of a, a force to be reckoned with. And it's it's almost it's also just more a point of pride for them doing well in this tournament than I think it is for for other teams. So that like and I think that that, that can sort of uh, make a difference when it comes to you know the, the the preparation they put in advance. Like this is what they kind of they always prepare for these tournaments. They'll play their best eleven more often than other teams do outside of the tournament. It means that come tournament time they're like a 
uh, you know a proper side to reckon with. Joe, when I go when I look at that West Indies lineup, uh, I think they're going to be some very high scoring games. Not just because they're batting, but I think their bowling attack could leak quite a lot of runs too. Do you think their bowling attack might hinder their chances of winning the thing? Yeah, I think so. And again, talking about this being India rather than Australia, where the tournament's happening, uh, that pushed me away from West Indies slightly. And Narayan's not the bowler he once was. Obviously, there's still ongoing issues with that action. Uh, I think their spin attack looks a bit light for a competition in India. That said, they concede 230. You could see them going and, and chasing it, but it's, it's hard to see them doing that over and over again across a tournament. Um, but certainly that that batting lineup. I mean, they're still. In terms of who you'd pay to watch, I think that batting lineup probably is is the best in the competition. Um, and yeah, I mean, Andre Russell had a slightly odd IPL, didn't he? He was he was not fit for quite a lot of it. wasn't quite at the ridiculous form he was last year. Um, and so much of it, again, we're talking. It's a, it's a snapshot of T Twenty cricket. How can he turn it on for two weeks? If he can, then he can almost win a tournament on his own. Cricket, Ben, you went for Australia uh, to, to to join India in the final. I look at their side and I think their batting is, is just a bit off England, West Indies and India. Uh, tell me why I'm wrong. Well, you're not, yeah. So I'd, I'd never tell you that. I, I don't think their batting is as good as uh, as India's, certainly. Certainly as England's. And uh, maybe even as, as, as good as South Africa's or or maybe even New Zealand's. I think there's there's a there's an issue there in terms of they're very top-heavy with Warner and Finch, probably Smith as well in the top three. I've put Stoinis on our predicted... I predicted the 11, but he might bat four or he might bat down. But then you've still got Glenn Maxwell at number five, who, whilst he's had a real, really poor IPL, he's a fantastic T20 batsman, particularly in Australia recently. So I think he's got opportunity to get form and then come back and hopefully in different conditions, you know, get back to his best. But the reason I've picked the, those two sides, as you say, Australia and India in the final, is just the bowling attacks. I do think that whilst other, maybe other sides have got better bowling attacks than India, I don't think anyone's got a better bowling attack in Australia, particularly the pace bowling, because it's just outrageous. The fact that you've got Stark at the tail swinging the new ball and bowling Yorkers at the death at 150 clicks. You've got Hazelwood, who's emerged as a proper, proper T20 new ball bowler, who, as we saw in England over, over the summer. Then you've got Pat Cummins as the enforcer to the middle, can bowl in every phase, which is not something you can say many T20 seamers. And then you've also got in the seam, seam department, you've got Zampa, Maxwell to kind of spin the ball either way. That's not outrageous. Zampa's a very good bowler. Maxwell's a kind of serviceable fifth, sixth. But these guys are then matched up by a very, very solid top order who will not, you know, they might not make 180, 190, but they are very, very good at chasing down 170. I think T20 tournaments is a massive cliche, but I think it is true. We saw it in the last World Cup that it kind of turned it on its head, the idea of the two batting lineups, two best batting lineups got to the final. But as a rule, the better bowling lineups do well. And I think if India pick their best side, which, you know, debatable, they will get to the final. And Australia, they know how to turn it on in tournaments. We saw it, they were junking ODI cricket in all of 2018 and then rocked up in the, in the, in the World Cup in 2019 and got to the semis. But they've got such depth that they can bring in if they need to. They've got other leggies if they want to bring in an extra spinner in terms of Fawad or Cameron Boyce. They've got variation bowlers with Ken Richardson. They've got Nathan Coulter-Nile as a kind of backup variation bowler as well. I, ju- I just think what they have, which is more so than any other side potentially, is bowling versatility which if you've got a good T20 captain, which at the moment they've got Aaron Finch, who is a good, you know, okay T20 captain, but they also potentially have the best T20 captain in the world in David Warner, who I think there's a fair chance that 
going into a tournament, they may overturn his leadership ban and just give him the armband. Or at the very least, he can just sit on Finch's shoulder and make all the decisions. I think you suddenly got a really versatile kind of Swiss Army knife attack that actually can limit almost every batting lineup in the world, apart from maybe the West Indies or England on their day. I, you know, I'd love them to do really well because they've only recently started taking T20 cricket very seriously and I'd like them to be rewarded for doing so. Um, but I, yeah, at the same time, you know, it is the old enemy, so we don't want them to do too well. No one's mentioned Pakistan or New Zealand yet. Pakistan were number one in the world for, for a while when no one was really taking T20i cricket that seriously. Are we placing them and New Zealand who might not be quite the force in T20 cricket as they are in ODI cricket? Uh, away from that top five that you guys mentioned, what do you think, Ben? Uh, I think that I mean, I mean, obviously they'll both be close and in contention. I think that uh, with, with Pakistan in particular, I kind of I, I worry looking at the squads that that they've chosen for for their upcoming series against New Zealand that, that they're going to go away from their strength and their strong players. Like a Muhammad Amir has been. Uh, left out with I think was saying that they want to focus on players who are going to be available in all three formats and if uh if that does become a longer term thing I mean that's one of their huge strengths sort of uh sort of locked off and uh you know Shadow Khan was key for them in their run to the top of the world rankings and has since not been the same force in T20 cricket I, th- I think if, if if all those players are, are sort of at their best there'll be a sort of a, a similar uh side to uh some of the others in a way that they've got like that that big top order strength, especially with Babar. They've also got a bit of explosiveness with Hader Ali and Hafiz as kind of, you know, the getting better with age kind of thing. And they will have a, a good bowling attack as well. I mean, Shaheen Afridi is uh, one of the best T20 bowlers in the world. So, so yeah, there's, no, there's definitely no writing them off. Uh, New Zealand, I guess. Uh, well, I mean, Trent Bolt was, you know, I, th- I think there's, there's going to be, there's so many strong quicks at the moment that like while Ben says that Australia is sort of far and away sort of the the best fast bowling attack that's why I went for South Africa actually was was there was there quicks and you got and it's just again the the mix of them you got Chris Morris with the, the Yorkers Rabada uh, can kind of do it all Nokia's sort of extreme pace and you look at New Zealand and they've got Trent Bolt has been extraordinary for Mumbai Indians this IPL uh Lockie Ferguson is a, a, a very very good white ball bowler and uh uh, yeah, I guess maybe they're just missing that that proper sort of that, that third quick, proper quick maybe to round out their attack, and maybe they're missing a little bit. Like Ross Taylor is arguably not a, a brilliant T Twenty batsman, but I mean, yeah, there's no no, no counting them, counting them out. I guess, especially you know they're they're, they're black in New Zealand. Whenever there's the the end of a tournament, they kind of find a way to sort of uh, find to, to to wrestle with the the bigger teams and and, and you know and compete. I guess. I think one of the issues that New Zealand, that Trent Bolt particularly is going to have is that, you know, his career actually hasn't been like the Mumbai 2020 IPL. Like that is not what he's done in T20 cricket for a huge period of time. He's He's been good. Like he's just been a good player. He's not a world beater. He's not Shane Afridi. He's not Mitchell Stark. He's just had a very, very good tournament. And I think everyone's maybe getting a little bit carried away with how good he is. I think one of the reasons why he's so good for Mumbai this year was that he had a very, very clear role that he basically bowled two, ideally three, in the power play every single time. And that was all that was all his job was. And he never really had to come back at the death and do that much. Whereas in this New Zealand side, given the balance that they've got, he's probably gonna have to bowl two and two. He's probably gonna have to come back at the death, which he's not as good at. 
and he's ideally suited to bowling three in the power play and trying to take wickets. But if you know if you hit him out of the attack, all of a sudden you're facing Nisham, Grondon, who aren't great, and, and Lockie Ferguson, who yeah he's very quick, but he can you know faster it comes, faster it goes. I think the issue for New Zealand is that they're just kind of one, as you say, one player short, and they've tried lots of different players um, over the last. They've tried Bennett, they've tried Southie, they've tried Scott Kugeline. Like these are, they haven't quite worked. And so I think the fact that they're just kind of one short will just make it quite difficult for them to kind of muddle through. I think they haven't quite got the batting to chase massive totals, and they haven't quite got the bowling to defend low totals. I think that they're just going to fall a little bit between the two. But you know, they'll they'll make the knockouts and they'll do well, New Zealand. I think you look at the New Zealand side and it, it looks like a side that's set up for 50-over cricket rather than T20 cricket. And you saw even in the 50-over World Cup, they kind of almost played it like it was a 60-over a World Cup in the, in, the, in the way they batted. And I just think that the fewer the overs, the less dynamic that side looks, particularly in this kind of post-McCullum era. Williamson does a great job at, at, at steering a chase, but he's not going to get you to, to 220, I don't think. Uh, and... When you look at Pakistan, I just think that middle middle to lower order is well short of West Indies, India, uh, Australia, England. And I think that's what's going to hold them back, even though they have got that gun bowling attack, which can get them out of trouble. And uh, finally on Afghanistan, Krikviz, Ben, how many spinners is too many spinners? <laughs> Easily field an all-spin attack, right? They've, they've got even more young spinners coming through, including an actual child who's a big, a big bash gig in... 15-year-old Noor Ahmed. Yeah, it's, it is slightly terrifying, isn't it? Just how many absolute top-class spinners. You almost need, they almost need to be able to have a, an auction or a draft or something and just swap a couple of top-order batsmen with some of their spinners from some of the other sides. You know, England would quite happily give them you know, probably David Milan for, for Mujib or something like that. But yeah, I mean, you've got, you've got Rashid Khan, Case Ahmed, Mujib Rahman, Zahir Khan, Noor Ahmed, Mohamed Nabi. Like, those are all very good T20 spinners. We don't know that much about Noor yet, but his numbers are are outrageous and we will see a bit more of him in uh, in Melbourne Red um in the uh, yeah in the coming coming months in the big bash what i'm hoping Rashi, uh, what i'm hoping afghanistan do is really back there back as you say back their strength just go in and say you know what we are an absolute cabal of spinners we're not going to be able to just sit and you know blast sides out with pace you've got Nabi Hat, Gobadin, we know about we know we know that they've got good seamers who can compete on their day maybe more so in 50 over cricket, but I think it would be, you know, it'd be creatively interesting and kind of tactically interesting if they did just say, you know what, we're going to basically bowl 20 overs of, of spin. And if you can't play spin, West Indies, uh, you know, South Africa to an extent, to an extent Australia, we might turn you over on our day. And, you know, we're going to have, probably going to have to turn you over for 130. But if we do that, then we've got half a chance of Hazratullah and Navi and the you kind of, you, you recognize Batman doing a bit of a job. I, 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 I wouldn't expect them to do that because it requires a bit of a leap of faith. But it would be really fun if they did, just because, you know, these tournaments are all about you know, the texture that you get, the different sides playing in different ways. It's like a football World Cup when someone just kind of starts playing, you know, an outrageously different style of, of football and you kind of, you, you know, you're open your mind to it. It'd be nice if we got a bit of that. We saw it with West Indies just, you know, picking eight batsmen and just absolutely hammering sides to, to 220. If Afghanistan went the other way and said, yeah. Feel free to try and hit Rashid out the attack, but if you don't hit him out the attack, then Mujib's there, and then Zahir's there, and Case is there, and yeah, they're proper proper bowlers who can really limit size on the day. I think the only thing which is maybe holding them back is that most of their bowlers are defensive bowlers rather than attacking bowlers. So they, whilst they could maybe defend if they, you know, flutes their way to one eighty, or they, you know, they'd probably be quite happily choking sides 
comfortably, but actually they're not necessarily going to blast sides away by taking wickets. They're more they're more of a defensive unit. Interesting. Well, that's the T20 World Cup all all sorted then. Uh, finally, on this week's show, as mentioned in the intro, there is a cricketer who has played for England in the last year who is currently ranked in the top 0.15% of all fantasy footballers in the world. Um, Joe, any guesses as to who this is? Uh, no, I, uh, I can probably guess a player, but I don't know this. Uh, Stuart Broad was top last year, wasn't he? Or came high? Stuart Broad wants one a game week, so he came first in the world in a particular game week. Um, but it's not Stuart Broad. Okay. Um, uh, quick biz, Ben. Any guesses? I mean, my my, I was going to go Broad. Um, yeah, I'll 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 go I'll go Joe Root. He likes his football. Uh, the answer is actually Matt Parkinson, um, who is having a very good season of fantasy football. Uh, and I spoke to Parkinson earlier to talk about the secret to his success. <laughs> so first off, how are you doing so well? Um, to be honest with you, it's absolute fluke. Um, my team is uh, Bolton Wanderers, so the football that I follow isn't great. Uh, League two, um, their season has been an absolute shambles so far. Um, so I've tended to pour my heart and soul into, into this, really. Um, fantasy football is a massive talking point in all changing rooms. Um, I went down to Loughborough to do some testing, and it was probably the main topic of, of, of conversation there as well. Um, to answer the question of how I'm doing so well, I've just backed the right players, I think. Um, I, I've got Grealish and Watkins, obviously, do, doing fantastically well at Villa. Um, and yeah, just gone for like pairings of midfielders and strikers that I think I think are going to score. But to be honest with you, as there's no there's no secret to it, I am probably one of the least football fans doing fantasy, um, which makes it even even more sweeter that I am currently top of all three leagues that I'm in. So you're not one of those people who like reads the Athletic just to see what their fantasy football tips are. Absolutely not. Um, I've just gone for the most basic team and I've had a couple of fluky weeks, but it's actually a fluky eight weeks now, so it's getting to the point where it can't be a fluke. Um, yeah, I think I've just backed a couple of players that other people haven't that has, le- has led me to do well. Like I've got Watkins in as well that he's p- people haven't, haven't really backed in. Um, I've changed my goalie around a couple of times, um, used my wild card, but apart from that, there's no secret. Um, but that is probably more the frustration of other people as well that they probably do do that research in the athletic and they are big big football fans and I'm yeah currently winning so to speak what what's the rivalry like with the other pros who are the uh, who are the other pros that are really into it um well we've got I'm part of three leagues so I've got one for my club cricket side where I'm comfortably top um most of those lads are Wanderers fans so the rivalry isn't too big there I'm Obviously, I'm in one with Harry, as you know, uh, and my brother. So that's probably the one that I focus on the most. But the one that I'm in with Lancashire has 30 players. So it's a massive league. Um, So to sit top of that after eight weeks, obviously fantastic. But yeah, there's some big, big fans in there. Um, Alex Davis is a massive football fan. Um, Saqib Mahmood, big big Liverpool fan. Um, I'm very smug that I'm beating our stats guy because obviously... Cricket statisticians will be the one that use those websites to uh, cheat in fancy football as well. So um, that's that's very pleasing. Um, and then it's also nice to see Liam Livingston bottom of the 30. I, I take fancy football uh, generally not that seriously, but I am taking it quite seriously this year. I'm not doing anywhere near as well as you, so that's quite frustrating. I think the people are taking it more seriously because they can't go and watch it live, I think. 
I found it more wishing that obviously people do take it seriously, but there's definitely more talk about it now as lads can't actually go and watch the teams, I think. I definitely think there are a lot of results that I only I only kind of look out for just because I've got, I don't know, a Burnley centre-back on my oh, team. Mate, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly me. I, I haven't watched a single game, I don't think, all season. <laughs> I just log on to my fantasy and check, <laughs> check the points. Anyway, that's that. Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Joe. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, tell your friends. And if you're feeling especially kind, why not leave us a favourable review in the podcast app? Cheers. Podcast Network.